This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Coffeehouse Shots podcast on this, the day of the Queen's Speech. I'm James Seif and I'm joined by Katie Balls. Now, Katie, this was an unusual Queen's speech because it wasn't delivered by the Queen, but by Prince Charles. The Queen's mobility issues prevented her from coming to Parliament to deliver the speech. But what message was the government trying to get across in this Queen's speech? So it's quite an interesting one in the sense that what was pre-briefed and what began the Queen's speech was this idea that the government's central priority is the cost of living crisis and growing the economy. But yet, when you look at the various bills in the Queen's speech, and this is partly just the fact that it is a Queen's speech, there are limits to what you can legislate for, it didn't really fold into that in, in the way that you would expect that's your front and centre message. So the government wanted to talk about cost of living, but if you start to look through the bills, of which I think they're 38, it's pretty wide-ranging, and it goes from things such as um, protests and having tougher rules around protests and uh, certain organisations to levelling up and potentially giving more powers to local communities on this. Some way to go to see what this means for planning when it comes to that bill. And then on conversion therapy, we had it confirmed that they will press ahead for conversion therapy, banning it, but not in the case of trans conversion therapy. And then I think on Northern Ireland, as you wrote about last week in The Spectator in your cover piece, there was a line which um, does... Play into this idea that the government could decide to start taking unilateral action when it talked about protecting the Belfast Agreement. So I think those were all the key planks. And there was also the Brexit Opportunities Bill, which is altering their plan to try and unleash Brexit opportunities that we've heard of many times before. But you bring all this together, and while I think some of this you could argue is ways to bring about economic growth, I don't think they classically fit into this idea of this is our cost of living Queen's speech. What did you think, James? I think it's in danger of being a pudding without a theme. You know, 38 bills is a lot. I think, as you say, one of the big problems for the government is it wants to say, because this is what the public are most concerned about, that it's primarily focused on the cost of living. But you, you can't solve that by legislative means. You can't pass a bill to return inflation to 2%. That's just, just not how things work. I, I, think, I think the emphasis on crime, it's quite striking if you look at the, the sheer number of home office bills there are coming up. And then, obviously, you add to that the whole... Um, Rwanda question. You can see the, the, the Tory party trying to basically move to shore itself up from being outflanked on both crime and immigration come the next action. There's obviously a kind of preventative series of measures there. But I think there is a the, the kind of clear question of what is this government for post-COVID isn't really answered by this Queen's speech. And I think that the challenge for the government is is, is to show that it still has ideas and purpose. You know, there are some people in government who think that they have, that this Queen's speech marks them kind of moving into almost into kind of campaign mode, and that they have gone into campaign mode too early, but they haven't managed to do enough on the policy front before going into this one more campaign-focused, campaign-driven approach. And so I think that is a, a danger for them. I also thought that in the debate that followed the Queen's speech, it was quite striking that this is the first time I can remember in a long time that Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson have clashed at the dispatch box without Partygate coming up. 
And I think that tells us something, that until this Durham police investigation is concluded, even with Keir Starmer's commitment yesterday that he would resign if fined, the Labour leader wants to steer clear of this subject while this investigation is, is, is going on. And I, I think one obvious corollary of that is that it is now in Boris Johnson's interest, although he obviously doesn't control this, for the police investigation into number 10 and the cabinet office and what happened or didn't happen there and then the Sue Gray report which can only come out once the police have concluded to, to be out sooner rather than later because Keir Starmer has obviously decided that he doesn't want to talk about this topic until he has you know until this Durham police investigation is finished. And James, I mean, let's, let's go into the details of the Queen's speech shortly, but just, just before we delve further, do you sense there is any appetite amongst the Tory side to talk about Beergate, which is obviously what Keir Starmer currently finds himself in, because the Tories have been pushing it pretty hard, but do you get the sense that now they want to call it a score draw? I thought there were a few jokes about it in Graham Stewart's speech, but I, I don't think there was gonna, wasn't an attempt to hammer it. There was a kind of reference from Boris Johnson to it when he referred to Keir Starmer as the opposition leader of the moment. And I think that Keir Starmer was trying to say that the government is tired and out of ideas. But his, his attack didn't really kind of sing. And, and I thought it, it, wasn't, it wasn't kind of devastating comments performance. I think partly that's because these occasions are always quite difficult for leaders of the opposition because but they are one of Parliament's days when Parliament is quite in-jokey. It is quite people talking about, you know, the speeches that propose and second it are heavy on, 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 on humour or attempted humour rather than on, on policy and politics. And, and it is quite kind of everyone in Westminster talking about themselves today, if you see what I mean. It's, it's a different tone of debate. And I mean, that is quite hard for these opposition to deal with. I think what Boris Johnson would like is for these things to become something that neither side wants to talk about. I think, I think if that is the case for the next four to six weeks, he will be very happy. Now, James, when it comes to what's in the Queen's speech, where do you see uh, the, the trickiest pieces of legislation coming out of the track? And also, do you think the government's actually going to have time to do all the things it's proposed today? Because it seems a pretty packed schedule, despite um, them whittling some things out. Well, uh, for a long time, I have thought that the most likely date of the next election is 2024 and relatively late on for the simple reason that you, if you are the government, you want to give as much time for this inflation to work its way through the system and people to begin to feel a bit better off as, as possible. And so if you went to the country in May 2024, or as an increasing number of Tories talk about, September, October 2024, you might have more time. And I think the fact that there are 38 bills in this suggests that this session is probably likely to run until the next general election, which was likely to be in 2024. In terms of what bill is going to have the trickiest time, I, it, it was actually a bill that was only elliptically referred to in the Queen's speech. I think if they do try and legislate on the Northern Ireland Protocol, I think that, not necessarily in the Commons, but I think in the Lords, that will have a very hard time because there's a fascinating report today in the Times about what Liz Truss, for, under whose auspices it now falls, wants the legislation to include. And, and that is a pretty maximalist approach. I think there is a divide in government about this. Some people who favour unilateral action on this, if necessary, think that it should almost be deliberately quite limited so that you can say to European countries that are friendlier with the UK, look, come on, you should stand against an effort to kind of come down in the UK like a ton of bricks because these steps by the UK are relatively mild and the integrity of the single market is still protected. The, the, the trust package talked about in the time today is very much at the maximalist end of a spectrum.
James, you mentioned one of the criticisms of the Queen's speech today is perhaps a a lack of probably trickier decisions, the things that you do mid-term before you get to your, I suppose, your goodies in terms of an election campaign. I mean, this government did win a majority of 80. Clearly there was a pandemic, which has wiped off lots of the time. But do you think there is enough in levelling up that there is a coherent message by the time of the next election to say, you know, we've started doing this, keep voting for us? I think one of the problems on levelling up was that levelling up was never really likely to deliver that much before 2024 or, you know, or 2023 because levelling up to be done seriously is, is about kind of long-term stuff on infrastructure, both physical and digital, and skills. But what I think the government does lack at the moment is some kind of statement of intent on levelling up. I personally think the big missed opportunity for the government is is planning reform. You know, this levelling up bill will include some planning things, but because the government took fright over the rebellion organised over the algorithm, uh, which was determining how many houses needed to be built where, you know, led ironically by Andrew Griffiths, who's now heading the number ten policy unit, and then took further fright after the Tory defeat in the Chesham Lamerton by election. You know, there is no planning reform, and that, that you know, which is ironic because Boris Johnson keeps telling cabinet ministers to come up with ways to boost the economy that cost no money. But if you want to ways to boost the economy that cost no money, planning reform is a much bigger lever to pull than requiring motorists to only have their car MOT'd every two years rather than every year. And on the subject of money, when Boris Johnson was speaking, he um, was t- discussing cost of living and he suggested, you'll hear from more from me and the Chancellor in the coming days. Now, since he said that, which is about an hour or so ago, I think the Treasury have come out to say there is no formal announcement coming. And also number 10 have come out to clarify that there is no formal announcement. So I think it was a brief period of thought, are we going to get a mini budget? Are we going to get an emergency budget? And that's not the case. Instead, people are being pointed to this idea of the cabinet talking about these non-fiscal measures. What do you think the appetite is amongst Tory MPs in terms of more action before the autumn? So I think what you see is the government trying to walk a tightrope of... You know, look, we get this. We know that people need help. We know that people want help. There will be help when energy bills go up again, as they will in the autumn. So that that message that, you know, they get this, but also about seemingly committing themselves to something being announced next week or or the week after that. And I think the government government are finding it very, very hard to walk that line. And, you know, Boris Johnson slightly fell off the tightrope today, by that, but it, it wasn't that radically different from what Kit Morehouse was saying on the media round this morning when he was talking about how you know the government is monitoring this on a daily basis, you know, to see what is happening, what is going on. Um, the, the issue for the government is not just how high inflation is, but that what is driving inflation is the two most basic goods, right? Food and energy. So it's the, we're not, not in a situation where inflation has been driven by goods that you could call as discretionary purchases, that people could cut down on them and kind of ease the squeeze. It is being driven by the two most basic things. And I think that is what is going to make life very difficult for the government over the next few months. Thank you, James. Thank you, Katie. And thank you for listening. <laughs>